I'm Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave at Bloom of the Present in Santa Cruz. This talk is on the difficult topic of non-hatred, one of the main tenets of the Buddha's teachings. By employing the actual teachings of the Buddha from the Pali Canon on non-hatred, we explored the very difficult territory of practicing non-hatred in a world filled with hate and injustice. May this talk benefit you and all other beings. I think it was two weeks ago, I taught at IMSB on the other side of the hill. Like this Sangha, it's full of lots of seasoned practitioners. I looked at what the other teachers were doing in the series and I thought, well, I think I will go for the jugular and give a talk on emptiness. And, you know, not the Buddha, Buddhism light talk on emptiness, but like emptiness. This is kind of the second part of going for the Buddhist jugular, which I think is the other really hard part of Buddhism for Western practitioners, which is non-hatred. And I think this is very poignant right now, yes. how to practice non-hatred. So I just thought I would ask all of you, do you think this is timely oh, yes. in our world and in your life? Absolutely. Yes. This has been coming up a lot. I've had phone calls to my private practice from at least for people who experienced unbelievable devastation watching Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that in general, there's sort of a feeling of total out of controlness in our country. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am sort of a sutta hound. Sutra hound, if I'm teaching over in the Tibetan tradition. I love the teachings, and so I like to actually offer the teachings when I teach, because often people don't actually read the suttas. Maybe all of you are sutta hounds too, and so I might be um, reciting some suttas that you've heard or read many times, but maybe not. The Buddha actually had a lot to say about non-hatred. Aversion was very big for the Buddha, and aversion has many forms, and hatred is one of the big ways in which aversion arises. Over in the, in the Tibetan tradition, they use the word anger a lot for hatred which is interesting, it's sort of interchangeable over there. But in the Theravada tradition, hatred um, is very much a word that is often used for aversion. And you may know the Four Noble Truths. The Second Noble Truth is basically says that suffering arises from craving and aversion. Tanha, that's the word for it, tanha, craving and aversion. Non-hatred is difficult when you live in the world because 
there's so many things that show up that are aversive in one way or another, wouldn't you say? I mean, think about your day, even today. How many times, either an internal or an external experience arose, and you either recoiled in some way, or you wanted to stop it, or you needed to just sort of distract yourself from it. I mean, just think about your day and how many times that might have happened. All of that is what Buddhism considers aversion. But hatred is specific. Non-hatred is the form of emotion that leads to the one thing that Buddhism really hangs its hat on, which is ahimsa, non-violence. It is the first precept, non-harming. And all the other precepts that come after the first precept are all non-harming precepts too. And these are just a few of the many, many suttas. So from the first two are from the Samyutta Nikaya. And the first one, the Buddha said, when embraced, violence breeds danger and fear. Just maybe sit with that for a moment. When embraced, violence breeds danger and fear. Let's just see how that resonates inside of you. What kinds of thoughts you have, feelings that come up. So this is also from the Samyutta Nikaya. The Buddha said, Killing, you gain your killer. Conquering, you gain one who will conquer you. Insulting, you breed insult. Harassing, you breed harassment. Thus, through the cycle of action, when you plunder, you get plundered in return. So again, just take a moment and let that sink in. This might be easier if you were a monk or a nun tucked away in a monastery. Surrounded by monks and nuns who also are applying this teaching. We're householders. That means we have to apply this in a world where these kinds of actions are commonplace. And often they are even affirmed by your government, by the people in your neighborhood, by people who share your religion or your race. How many times have you heard even Buddhists say, well, in self-defense, killing is okay. And yet the Buddha is saying clearly, when you kill, all you gain is your killer. You are reaping 
killing. So one more verse. This one is from the Dhammapada. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy, or haters one to another, far worse is the harm from one's own wrongly directed mind. Hmm. Shall I say that one again? Yes. (laughs) The Buddha had just had a way of saying things, didn't he? Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy, or haters one to another, far worse is the harm from one's own wrongly directed mind. Now just try to imagine if you were to ascribe that this has veracity for you. Try to imagine what it was like that two Saturdays ago when in mass our nation awoke to a protest that ostensibly the reason they got the permit was because a statue representing the Confederacy and the Civil War was going to be taken down and these individuals felt that it should not be taken down, that it had meaning for them, and maybe meaning for their ancestors who'd fought in that war on the side of the Confederacy. And they wanted, in some way, maybe some of them, to have those lives honored. And they didn't want them forgotten. So they got a permit to march in Charleston. And then what showed up was something else. What showed up was something that probably inspired many other American minds who saw this and then saw the ensuing mess of violence that occurred after It may have inspired a lot of minds to be generating a tremendous amount of hatred toward those 500 individuals. So now ask yourself, as a Buddhist, which was more harmful? Millions of minds wrongly directed, not recognizing, suffering, human, basic human suffering in another human mind, not recognizing that with wisdom, not recognizing that human beings suffer and they cause harm when they suffer and they do experience ignorance and therefore they, in fact, should be the objects of our deep compassion and equal deep wishes for their freedom from suffering, yet instead a mass of hatred was directed at these human beings. Now what I am saying right now is radical. Even in the Buddhist community, there are not many Buddhist teachers who have the guts 
to do this. But that's partly because of the way Western Buddhism is. We make accommodation. Okay. The teachings are very clear. A wrongly directed mind is much more harmful. And yet, we make excuses for wrongly directing our minds because of self-righteousness and our sense that we are somehow right and they are somehow wrong. And we hang wisdom on that rather than seeing through, cutting through delusion and seeing that every single one of us in some way or another suffers from human delusion. And we are all equally, no matter what any human being does, no matter how harmful they are, our wise seeing, our deep compassion is neither agreement, nor is it acceptance, nor is it in any way contributing to their ignorance. It is in fact a recognition that their ignorance is no different than our ignorance, and we are all suffering in one way or another. And they, frankly, have just as much capacity to liberate themselves from suffering as I do. And this is the teaching of the Buddha. You do not meet violence with violence. You do not meet hatred with hatred. You only love. That's it. And love does not mean you agree. But the truth is, you can speak out against wrong views without hating the one who holds the view. That is the teaching of the Buddha. And this is hard for Western Buddhist practitioners to hear because we want to be right. That is grasping at delusion. Shall I read you some of the antidotes that the Buddha offered to us since this is so hard to do. I don't know about you, but I'm listening to myself and I am thinking, this is really hard to do. This is the hardest thing to do. So let me tell you about, I will self-disclose. I don't really self-disclose in my Dharma talks very much, even though my compatriots who are Dharma teachers continually tell me that your Dharma talks are always better if you tell people about your personal experience. I will tell you about this experience because, frankly, it was shocking for me. So on Saturday, it is true I'm a psychotherapist, but my first career I was a fairly well-known visual artist. So I still have a painting studio, and when I can, I hide myself in my painting studio and I work <laughs> in there. <laughs> so on that Saturday that the Charleston March was going on, I was hidden away in my studio. And it wasn't until about, I don't know, maybe 2 p.m. that I sort of emerged and went over to my iPhone and picked it up and started looking. And, of course, I saw what everybody else saw, and I'm Jewish. I'm one of those Jews who, as a child, uh, basically went to Hebrew school every Saturday and at least... I'd say every two months, our very old rabbi would pull out films of the Holocaust. Now, 
we didn't have Steven Spielberg, okay? We had actual footage <clears throat> of the bodies and the boxcars and the real deal. Pull them out and show them to us and stand in the back of the room and say, don't forget this could happen to you. So this is my conditioning. So you might imagine that when I took out my iPhone and I looked at it, you might imagine that I would immediately be completely freaked out. Wouldn't you think that? Possibly even incredibly angry. Yeah? So I looked at my iPhone and you know what showed up? And I tell you, this was a total shock. This wave of compassion for every single one of those white supremacists. Mm. And a wave of compassion for every single one of the protesters who are marching against them. And I was completely shocked. There was absolutely no hatred in me and I didn't understand it. Because it was so spontaneous, it wasn't a thought. And I had never had anything like this happen before. And that's why I'm giving this talk tonight. Because I couldn't tell anybody about the fact that this had happened. Because if I told people in my family this had happened, they would be very angry at me. They would not understand. I did tell my best friend who completely freaked out and was really angry with me and told me that I was kidding myself and I wasn't human. And this is my dearest best friend who's an incredible practitioner, by the way, and an amazing woman. And of course, you know, we had this awesome conversation about it and we, it was beautiful at the end. So that's why I'm giving this talk, because on some level, I actually know there is, we have a spontaneous capacity to go beyond our conditioning and to have this kind of humanness, this ground of essence that we are, this clarity. You're all seasoned practitioners, right? You've been listening to all your Buddhist teachers forever tell you the essence of mind is what? What is the essence of mind? Loving kind of Empty clarity manifesting as compassion. Mm. So let me tell you what the Buddha says about antidotes. Are you, do you want to hear that? Sure. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, it's nice to be berated by him, but frankly, it's <laughs> nice to get some help. <laughs> this is a verse from the Dhammapada. All tremble at violence. All are fearful of death. Seeing others as being like yourself, neither kill nor get others to kill. All tremble at violence. Life is dear for all. Seeing others as being like yourself, neither kill nor get others to kill. Don't speak harshly to anyone. What you say will be said back to you. Hostile speech is painful and you will meet with retaliation. So again, just take a moment. Really. Take that in. This Buddha is pointing at this precious capacity 
that we have as human beings for the, the deepest clarity in a really difficult moment. Unbounded wisdom of equality. When we say equality in the West, we say everyone is equal. But we don't actually mean everyone is held in equal regard because human beings are tribal animals. And, and you know they do lots of research now with oxytocin. They put it in your nostrils, they have other ways to give it to you. And every time they do studies, all it shows is that oxytocin increases the love and connection between <coughs> in-group members, not between in-group and out-group members. It does nothing for them. So Buddhism is a philosophy of mind that imagines there is no in-group and there is no out-group. There are human beings and the wisdom of equality is literally that we are just beings walking on the planet. None of us are special. None of us are broken. We are all the same. We are ordinary, and that ordinariness is precious. It's beautiful. But it exists in everyone, no matter how horrible the person is. They still have that essence. We can be the vessel that sees the essence and that's what we allow them to see is that we are seeing the essence okay one more verse from the Dhammapada always wide awake are those whose minds constantly day and night delight in harmlessness always wide awake harmlessness these go together. Our dear teacher, Anantukhi, <coughs> likes to say, there's only two things, delusion and non-delusion. <laughs> and he's right. When you realize you're lost, you're awake. You're not deluded anymore as soon as you realize. The question is, in the next moment, are you going to go back to sleep or are you going to remain awake? And that next moment takes recollecting. It takes sati, smriti. Recollecting, not mindfulness. The real translation is recollecting. Can I recollect that the next moment I don't have to go to sleep? I can stay awake. Okay, one more from the Samyutta Nikaya. And this is similar to the last one. Slightly different take on it. One whose mind all day and night delights in harmlessness who has loving-kindness for all beings, for them there is enmity with none. So here the Buddha is saying, there is only one way to practice non-hatred, that is to commit to harmlessness, to renounce harming, and then to do that through intentional kindness, generosity towards beings. Now, 
Kindness and generosity towards beings in this case is very specific. The generosity you are showing is recognizing they are suffering too. And that kind recognition, I wrote about this in my textbook, kind recognition is the first step and a very powerful step of compassion. You are kindly recognizing that suffering is occurring, either in yourself or in someone else. And you are recognizing it without judgment, without blame. You are recognizing it from the place of equality. Yes, I too know that I drop into suffering myself. And yes, my suffering may be different than a white supremacist suffering, but ultimately it's all arising from the same place, delusion in the mind. So I can view it that way. I don't have to say, your suffering is much worse than mine. I can say this is human suffering. And um, because of that, because I know human beings have the capacity to liberate themselves from suffering, now my little meta practice has some juiciness, right? I'm not just wishing someday white supremacists don't hate blacks and Jews and anybody who isn't like them, right? No. What I'm doing is I am definitively knowing that at any moment, any one of those minds can awaken and renounce that kind of hatred. I want to hear from you, but I want to give you a sense of what this looks like. Um, and if any of you are interested, do you all know what the Mind and in Life Institute is? Does anybody know? No, I've heard of it. Ah, so um, the Dalai Lama, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, so um, he had a very dear friend who is no longer alive. His name is Francesco Varela, and he was a French neuroscientist who was probably the first person to talk about an embodied mind, that the mind is not just some brain, there's a nervous system, there's an environment that actually the way we cognize is an interdependent collective experience. It's not just a bunch of neurons. And um, he was uh, also a practitioner and I think starting in 1992, the Dalai Lama started having dialogue with neuroscientists about mind and this was under the auspices of Mind and Life. And it's a foundation and they offer grants to scientists and researchers to study consciousness and the mind, and they've branched out. And every year they have a dialogue with the Dalai Lama. So this year, for the first time, the dialogue was in Africa, and it was in Botswana. Mm -hmm. And the dialogue was centered around this African traditional idea called Ubuntu, and what Ubuntu is, which they spent two and a half days trying to talk about what it actually is, it's a form of compassion that does exactly what I am talking about. It wraps and embraces compassion, forgiveness, seeing thing, people and things as they actually are, and this total open-heartedness. It's quite remarkable. And it was very interesting two and a half days of talks, a lot of the speakers were um, African, and the Dalai Lama actually couldn't make it because he wasn't feeling well enough to fly halfway around the world. So 
it was really great. You, if you go on the Mind and Life website um, and you look up dialogues with the Dalai Lama, you can watch all the talks. And there were, there were two talks in particular. One, one of the people on the panel was an African medicine man, and he was amazing. Amazing. And the other person who was the last talk was a psychologist, a woman, an African woman, who was instrumental in the discussions that they had in South Africa, the reconciliation discussions. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was wondering if that they applied that, right, in that truth. She got up and she talked about how reconciliation was actually done by the mothers. Hmm who had their sons and daughters killed during apartheid years. So I just want to read you something that she said, which I think is very potent. Um, her name is Pumla Gobodo Madzikizela, and she is a psychologist. And so she talked about a term called inimba. And inimba is close to Ubuntu. So it has the same intention, but she's sort of explaining it. And this is what she says. Inimba means in English something like an umbilical cord. But it means much more than that. It is a deep feeling of being cut deep down inside of you. Many women in Africa will say behind the navel they feel a movement of connecting with another person. They don't feel a link of forgiveness with the perpetrator of the trauma. They feel a link with the mother of the man who may have traumatized them or traumatized their family members. This is how they find through their body a feeling that amounts to forgiveness, but is much more than forgiveness. I see this perpetrator asking for forgiveness, and then I see the mother and what she might feel about what her child did. This is the victim putting themselves in the position of the mother hearing about what the son has done. This is what Ubuntu is, an inextricable interwovenness, a forgiveness that is an embodied complexity, not a concept. When these women feel inimba, it is a dramatic moment of reconnecting with that nakedness, a moment of utter and absolute truth. How is this possible? We need to get to the essence of what actually happens in order to appreciate the sheer possibility of the impossible. This is layers and layers that can't be explained by just a change of heart. So this is what I am doing. I am asking you to step into the sheer possibility of the impossible. That a white supremacist can liberate themselves from their suffering, from their hatred, because it is totally possible, because they are human beings just like us, 
and they can liberate themselves from suffering because that's what happens when you're born in a human body. You are born in a vessel that is set up for liberation. That is the tenet of Buddhism and that is why we do not need hatred. Because hatred will separate someone who is already suffering in hatred from seeing the deep wisdom and compassion that will liberate them. Be that, like these mothers in South Africa. I have no need to accept the behavior of a white supremacist in order for me to deeply recognize that they suffer. Western psychology says you have to know who they are and what they feel in order for you to be able to treat them this way. Buddhism says we are human beings. Human beings suffer from ignorance, primordial ignorance. Therefore, when you are faced with suffering, remember you too are a human being who suffers. And because you're a practitioner, you're on the path of liberating yourself from your suffering. So remember, the reason you can do that is because you're a human being. Therefore, whoever you are meeting mm -hmm. who is not aware and not on the path of liberation, you can know that they have the capacity to liberate themselves in a heartbeat if they awaken. If they even know there's such a thing as being able to awaken. And for me, this is what makes the Buddhist teachings precious. Mm -hmm. It just reminds us, oh, right, I'm suffering. All right, I can be awake right now. They're suffering. They could be awake right now. Do I want to show them wakefulness or do I want to show them suffering? It's the choice, ultimately, for us as practitioners. When you're not a practitioner, you don't have the choice. But when you're a practitioner, this is our choice. And it's really hard to do living in the world. Mm -hmm. Really hard, I think. It's got to be. Don't you think? Yes. Well, I just would say that I related a lot to the story of the mother and if my son and the mother of the other son, mm -hmm. you know, it just absolutely rings true for me. Yes. It's very moving. It's inspiring, mm -hmm. as I think several people mm -hmm. have said. Mm -hmm. That's why I read it. It inspired me. <laughs> I just keep constantly, I mean, like probably everybody else, being reminded of how Martin Luther King yeah. addressed those yeah. issues. Yeah, you exactly. Know? I mean, he just, you know, walked right in front of it mm -hmm. without, with love and compassion. Did you want to say something? I who is very moved by just hearing the sutras that you read. It's kind of cool, isn't it? And I realize that I would like to have you recommend a book. Maybe that's ah. a, I, 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 I've read a lot of books, but I'm not sure that they were just... 
uh, overtly uh, talking about the okay. they were embedded, but I, I think what, what would be a good starting place? I would be happy to do that. There are several very good translations of the Dhammapada. Yes, and um, you know, I actually like the one that Gil Fransdale did. I think it's an excellent okay. mm-hmm. translation of the Dhammapada. Honestly, the suttas are vast. <laughs> They're vast. I know. However, there is a website called Access to Insight. And if you go to Access to Insight, uh, they have many of the um, Samyutta Nikaya, the Majin Nikaya, the Dika Nikaya. They have many of the Nikayas just up there, the translations. And what they have is a search window, so you can put in a topic <laughs> that you want to see what the Buddha had to say and the, whatever they have on there. Um, particularly, I love Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations of the, of the Tripitaka. And so they're very thick, big books. Yeah. So, but, so in the beginning, it's nice to be able to go online if you really love reading the suttas, then I suggest that you go and buy Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. First of all, I want to thank you all for your kind attention. I know this was, is a very hard topic, and um, I know your first time with me, this was probably hard, but honestly, I knew you were all seasoned practitioners, so I didn't want to come here and bore you. I thought I would come here and do something that might be relevant. So thank you for your kind attention.